With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. What is up, everyone? Welcome to Unpeeling Syracuse Basketball, a Noons Magician production. I'm your host, Dylan Finer, and today I'll be joined with my co-host, Bobby Manning. We'll be breaking down the week in Syracuse basketball, including the loss to Duke, the win at Louisville, or at home against Louisville, excuse me, uh, and catch you up on some news and happenings in Cuse land. Uh, without further ado, let's talk Orange. Puts up the shot, it's too long, and Syracuse is your national champion. All right, what is up, everyone? We are recording another episode of Unpeeling Syracuse Basketball. Thank you for joining us. I'm Dylan Finer, and I'm here with my co-host, Bobby Bobby Manning. Manning. What's up, Bobby? Hey, I just had a blast yesterday. It was a bit of a somber, crazy week. As we expected it to be with what the schedule was, but other things came into play, and wow, it was a rush. And today was definitely a day to rest and take it all in. Yeah, definitely. I've been enjoying my Sunday. Um, It was really nice out this morning for a minute, you know. Uh, And then I was kind of like, yeah, you know, this will be a nice peaceful Sunday. We're getting some rain now, which kind of stinks. It goes from 50 to 18 in two days, I think I saw, which is nuts. So... We know what happened this week. Uh, the news was hard to understand, tragic, and a bit chaotic up here in Syracuse. It was amazing the way it was covered here nationally, and it pretty much took over all of central New York this week, and that was uh, the news everybody knows about at this point. Right. Props to you uh, for being there down at the station. Props to uh, the Daily Orange as well and Syracuse.com, of course. Uh, I, feel, I felt like there was great coverage all around, making sure the facts came out and that we uh, the story was getting straight. Um, obviously, we're talking about the um, accident uh, that occurred on 690, where Jim Beheim struck and killed Jorge Jimenez, uh, 55 years old, of Syracuse. Um, so it, it was well covered. Uh, and I think that the the release of information was well done. I don't know. You were you were quite tuned in. You got any words? Yeah. So we pulled up to the police station on Thursday for one of my classes, and I don't know in a million years if that happens again. We pull up looking for a breaking story. We we're supposed to write a police story for the semester, and that drops the day we pull up there. Literally. Five minutes after we arrived, they were set to release a statement that Jim Beheim struck and killed someone on 690 the night before. 
it was insane because that night, 9.30, I see Bayheim leaving the locker room after the Louisville win in his trench coat. Yeah, he heads out to dinner at his favorite Italian restaurant after that, and then he heads home. And that's when he came across his car, stopped perpendicular in a road, as the police said. And in an effort to avoid it, ended up striking and killing um, Jimenez. The Daily Orange had an amazing piece about Jimenez and, um, you know, his love for baseball. Um, he's a Cuban immigrant and loved to cook. So he was beloved by a lot of people in the Syracuse community. And he was a Syracuse resident. So Bayheim was devastated and ultimately ended up coaching the Duke game. Now, the police said he's not going to be charged with anything. There's some, you know, ridiculous speculation going around nationally and it was a tough story to headline for sure because you don't want to say Bayheim killed somebody because that implies intent and um you know Bayheim was involved in a fatal car crash makes it sound like he died we were talking about that yesterday how yeah. tough the story was to you know cover directly but the police were pretty open about talking about it in the details they got the information out quickly that day um obviously it was a big story to um fly around nationally so there's an extra effort to do it especially with his importance um but you know at this point they're still investigating it but by all you know accounts it's just going to be a tragic accident so it just put a damper on saturday along with you know not nearly as um devastating news but zion williamson not playing affected the event as well no college game day it was really supposed to and it was still was a special game on saturday but it definitely had a different kind of tone to it when it was all said and done this week. Yeah, sure. So uh, order of events here, uh, you know, the accident happened on Thursday night or Wednesday night. Wednesday night, yeah. Wednesday night, Thursday. The coverage happens and ESPN pulls out of game day. Uh, Friday it's announced that Jim Beheim will coach in the game. Uh, I mean, our, I, our feelings, I feel, are probably pr- pretty similar. It was Beheim's decision to make. Um you know, whether or not he coached, and uh, I don't think it was anyone else's decision. I don't think it's anyone else's... I mean, people can have their feelings, but I don't think anybody can criticize Bayheim for having coached in the game. Uh, Wild Hack, yeah, so that... Wild Hack released a statement on Friday saying that he'd coach. Uh, on Saturday, there was a moment of silence for the game, um, and then we just watched it back. Both of us were in attendance of this game, you covering me in the stands. Um we just watched back how ESPN handled it, and I thought that they that they did a great job. Uh, Dan Shulman and um, and Joe uh, Jay Billis, excuse me. Um, so they showed Beheim and Coach K embrace. Um, Coach K actually said after the game to uh, Dana O'Neill on uh, of the Athletic that you know um, Coach K said that Beheim isn't a hugger, never hugged anyone. Uh, or doesn't hug many people, had never hugged Kay even when they were on the Olympic teams, you know, and he that embrace before the game was, like, something that surprised Kay. And uh, Coach Kay said, yeah, I, I gave him my condolences, told him that condolences might be the wrong word there, but uh, expressed my support of him. Um, they showed yeah. Julie. Yeah, they uh, talked they talk pregame, and I think what Bayheim said he got out of it was that, you know, life doesn't always go the way you want it to, and they spoke briefly before the game. They hugged before the game and coach k was great after the game he really sounded like a you know true genuine friend the way he was consoling behind in the situation and you know even making light of the game a little bit laughing about the hug was funny there um but 
All right. So, Everyone so, handled it well. ESPN handled it well. I thought post game, the questions were appropriate, and everybody talked about it. And you got to talk about it. Like you know, it's a pertinent issue and something that's in the news. You don't have to go too deep if you don't want to, but everybody addressed it in their own way, and it was uncomfortable, but. I thought it was all done very well. Yeah, so, I mean, moving on, because I don't think, I'm sure people are pretty saturated with this news at this point. Um, We'll move on, um, total shifting gears here. Uh, We'll talk about the celebrities that attended the game. You had Rob Gronkowski, um, who was really well-received among (laughs) even the New York folks. I think that uh, the students (laughs) really love Gronk for his, like, party uh, atmosphere and, you know. um, And I had a bet. You know me, I love the bets. I had a bet that he was going to go to a tailgate, go to a post-game party or something like that, but between the loss, the Robert Kraft news we heard about this week, and you know the Bayheim stuff, I don't think it was appropriate on any front for him to be doing any of that. And he's older, which I forgot about. You know, I'm still imagining a younger Gronk who absolutely would have been partying up here, but there was no partying. Right, yep. Stephen A. Smith was in attendance as well. Um, you had John Gillen showing up to the game. Uh, Joe Girard third Syracuse recruit uh, in the class of 2019, was there, as well as Quincy Guerriere, um, another Syracuse recruit for next year, uh, taking pictures and stuff. It was great to have uh, some people out. This was truly a spectacle. Like, the ESPN broadcast of this, you know, they did a really good job with the uh, spider camera above the stadium getting getting some good views, or above the floor, I'm sorry. And it's, it's weird because the game felt different. You, the camera up there was different. The atmosphere was different. The coverage and the people in attendance, like, it was an event. And you wonder why that doesn't happen around Syracuse more often. Maybe because they've been down for a few years from where they usually are. But when Duke comes, like, they really take advantage of the Carrier Dome and the record-breaking attendance and all this atmosphere up in Syracuse. Like, it becomes like what you imagine, like, in the pamphlets, like, when you're looking at, like, what it's like to be at a Syracuse game. And it doesn't always turn out to be that way. But on this day, it was, like, the best atmosphere you could have imagined. I saw uh, Mark Titus uh, of, you know, he he records uh, One Shining Podcast, which is in the Ringer Podcast Network. Great podcast. Uh, if you guys are looking for a national college basketball show to tune into, he uh, he actually tweeted something out uh, like, oh, uh, Carrier Dome's on the bucket list of, like, stadiums I need to be at. And you know what? Like, that was an event last night, and that's one of those, you know— things that you just need to be there and experience especially if you're a big college basketball fan nationally I'm sure uh, most of our audience is you know diehard Syracuse fans but you know and they know as well as we know but you know this is this is like the spot to experience or one of the few yeah and it does depend on that opponent so there are going to be those marquee games and I was in the thrift store the other day and you know Georgetown would do it back in the day Villanova they'd have those record-breaking games and now it's really just Duke yeah. I mean, if UNC was here last year, I wasn't at that game, were you? Was no, that, I wasn't there. Yeah, so I wonder if that one lived up to that, like, hype, carrier dome, atmosphere type event, because it was a phenomenal game, I remember, but mm-hmm. I, don't, I wasn't in attendance for that one. Definitely. Uh, so, quick break. Uh, before we head in and do the Duke game, just our Mike Hopkins weekly update uh, for you guys. Washington is now 22-5. and five. Utah and Colorado won this, or they beat Utah and Colorado this week. Um, Pac-12 shaping up to be a one-bid league, and we're uh, 
you know, we already root for Washington, so let's continue to root for them as they head into the Pac-12 tournament. Yeah, i got to catch more games of them because they're going to be an impact team in the NCAAs. Uh, they should win the Pac-12, and it would be really sad if they don't, depending on how the rest of our schedule pans out. But, uh, wow, the Pac-12 is just, yeah. Yeah, uh, Pac-12 is kind of ugly, really ugly, uh, some might say. Um, and Washington's going to be another team just like Syracuse with the 2-3 zone that's tough to prepare for come tournament time. So you might see Mike Hopkins, you know, I don't know I don't know what they're shaping up as seed-wise, maybe a 7 or an 8 probably in that range, 7 to 9, mm-hmm. I'm sure. Um but, you know, they'll they'll get matched up, and they might be a threat in the round of 32. If they can make it out of their first-round game to upset, you know, uh, a two-seed or a one-seed even, um, depending on where they're seeded uh, and who they would be matched up against. I look at a team like a Tennessee who uh, doesn't necessarily have as great of shooting as some other uh, top-tier teams um, that— you know, Washington could be dangerous. I just hope somehow, some way, them and Syracuse run into each other. That'd be a lot of fun. That would be a lot of fun. All right, so we're going to break down the Duke game a little bit here. Um, and so Syracuse loses 75 to 65. Uh, the line was about five points, and I felt pretty good about Syracuse's odds um, in this one. You know, I. Uh, I felt like five points was a good margin where Syracuse, you know, like they'll keep it close. I mean, it did break down a little bit there at the end. But I kind of want to highlight the first half because I think the first half epitomizes my emotions surrounding this game. Um, first half, Syracuse leaves uh, leading 34-29 to 29, um, after some great play. And it was possession for possession. They were able to stay ahead of Duke. And R.J. Barrett was coming at them full speed. He became the center of attention. And they were able to get Duke to settle for a lot of perimeter shots. They jammed up the middle, so when Duke was moving to that baseline, they weren't able to get a lot going right there. And Hughes hauled in the rebounds incredibly with the guards running to the boards. Uh, O'Shea Brissett was tipping out balls against some bigger guys when he needed to get in there. And, you know, Hughes' battle and Howard ended up making up the brunt of the rebounding effort in that first half, and they did a phenomenal job winning that. On the other end... Duke was playing Deloria in the middle, and Shuko obviously has, like, what, seven inches on him. So he, he was just pretty much reaching up for balls over his head. He wasn't always able to control them, but I think he got four first-round offensive rebounds, so those extra chance points were huge. He actually started the game off grabbing one addition out to Howard for a three. So they were getting spot baskets. Battle was really held down by that Trey Jones pressure, and we both expected that to be a problem for the guards. And he ultimately broke out of that for a little stretch where he was able to get a couple of baskets to go. And then Dolezal comes off the bench, six straight points. He's been so good for them, their most consistent player all season. Uh, that move he had when Elijah Hughes crossed up Reddish on the left side and dished it off to Dolezal, he hit him with the up fake and ran for the dunk. That was the play of the game. Yeah, and then he flexed after that. That was sweet. You, you see him flex at the cameras, and I don't know if they got a face-on view of that. They might have uh, someone somewhere, but the ESPN broadcast got it from like a little side angle. So Syracuse had the team effort they needed, and I was saying this at the end of the first half. They pretty much had three guys. Hughes was good in that first half, too. They pretty much had Hughes, Howard, and Battle working in as a trio to match R.J. Barrett alone, 
And Barrett had a few weird misses early. He threw like an alley-oop type thing off the rim, and uh, he had another miss in the early going. But after that, I think he locked into like a stretch where Duke had like five straight makes on six possessions toward the end of the half, and he had like four of them. So he was pretty much scoring methodically the rest of the way, and it was easy to see why before the season – some people had him up at number one and set his eye on. Yeah, I mean, I think that he was consensus number one uh, preseason because people didn't know how Zion's game would translate, and obviously we've seen uh, that he's incredible and a phenom. But um, Barrett was really awesome, and as you said, Delorier was in the middle of the zone for a lot of the first half, and I think one of the adjustments that Duke made in the second half was rotating Barrett in more to that high post area and finding ways to get him the ball because he's so elusive with the ball in his hands, and he's such a great distributor. He had seven assists on the night uh, to go along with his 30 points. Jesus, that's a stat line. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they, he was piercing the zone with his drives, and they were just getting him the ball at the high post. You can see how many things he's capable of doing, working the high post, manning the ball at the top of the arc. He had one play where he was in the corner, and he shot a bullet to the left wing that O'Connell hit for three and O'Connell. Like, he, he had 20 points, five threes, and I really don't know how they could have done anything differently on him because he was just hitting shots on a dime seconds after he caught it. He was phenomenal. Yeah, his game. release is super quick, and yeah. a lot of what, like, Duke deserves a ton of credit here, and I think that a lot of Syracuse fans are like, no, you weren't, you like, they're like, well, how are you not guarding O'Connell? O'Connell is the shooter, but, <laughs> man, Duke was swinging the ball and making it tough for Syracuse to Their keep Their passing out of halftime was phenomenal. Not only did they put Barrett in the high post, Trey Jones was there on the first few possessions, too, when he got four quick points to go. Out of halftime, they were literally scoring on almost every single possession, and that eventually just piled up on Syracuse. O'Connell hit three threes in a short stretch after that. Um, there was an offensive rebound situation where Barrett had a big three off of, and it was pretty much the game right there. Through the, I want to say five minutes into the second half, they built their six-point lead or so, and that was all they really needed for the rest of the game. O'Shea Brissett getting hurt for that six-minute stretch hurt Cues, too, because you really can't replace the role he plays at the four for them. Yeah, uh, O'Shea didn't have a great night stat-wise. He was um, big on the rebounding game, though, and that right. really did. Duke out-rebounded Cues by 11 in the second half. Yeah. And um, I was wondering where Marquise Bolden was, and he came in in the last 10 minutes and got four key offensive rebounds, and that was a key game-stealing stretch, too, for them. I mean, do you look at Duke in person and you say, all right, it's very easy to see what the difference between this team and other college basketball teams are. Like, yeah. They just have that professional approach to them when they're yeah. on uh, Kay is a hell of a coach, too. He had his guys ready, you know, to make plays in that second half. It took, oh, it took it a couple methodical. adjustments. <laughs> yeah. uh, they ended up scoring 46 points in that second half, and that wasn't a knock on... Syracuse's defense I think we've been like kind of circling that but I want to explicitly state like there wasn't much Syracuse could do in that second half because Duke was on fire you know and that's that's just that'll happen sometimes Duke's passing the ball really well clicking on all cylinders and knocking down their three-point shots sometimes you just got to shrug and say what are you gonna do yeah I think you come out of this one with a few reservations about Q's too because their rebounding effort obviously dropped off in the second half uh, offensively, their approach was not nearly as methodical as it was in the first half. Uh, they had a ton of empty possessions where they were just forcing up shots. Howard wasn't great, as Beheim talked about after in that second half. Um, this didn't seem like Buddy Beheim's game either. Mm -hmm. And um, eventually, guys just kept falling off, and 
Battle did not have his best shooting game, and the free throws were horrendous. This might have been Syracuse's worst free throw game that I can think of all year. Uh, Battle had one where he got fouled on the right wing for three, and he hit one out of three. Wasn't Syracuse like six for six or something to start off the game? I think that they... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think they started off well, and then, like, all the misses happened towards the end of the game, which was, maybe I'm thinking the Louisville. And that was a situation where Syracuse could have gotten back into it through the free throws, because Duke got them into the bonus with about seven minutes left, and they just kept handing them free throw after free throw. Right. And then and I, it was weird, yeah. because Duke was building this lead, and then they kept fouling Syracuse, and it's like, alright, thank you, because you're slowing the clock for us, letting us, get like, crawl our way back. Um without taking time off the clock, and Syracuse wasn't taking advantage, which was super frustrating, obviously. Yeah, it was a frustrating loss because even Bayheim said after, if you make a few more shots in this one, then you're right in the game. And you can always say that, but they did not make a whole lot of shots, both from the field and the free throw line. It felt like Syracuse was definitely pressing. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It was like, and they did press like, <laughs> yeah. No, I meant, pre- I meant pressing like offensively, right? Like, uh, you had Tyus kind of, you know, try to take over, and I don't blame him for trying to take over. He's our best player. He's who we want the ball in the hands of. But he would drive. I think he had a couple drives with his left hand where he tried to stop and make a pull up, a tough pull up because he was being guarded well, or he tried to get to the rim and take like a real contested layup, and. Um, it was tough. The, like They were kind of early in the shot clock possessions that um, like you want the ball in the hands of Tyus, but at the end of the day or at the end of the possession, you're kind of just like, we could have waited or tried to set up something better than that, get a better look. Uh, and like those shots down the, down the stretch kind of crushed uh, any hope of and the comeback. We, we talked about before the show, but making the most of every possession is so important for this team because in a game where you have such small margins – you look back and you say, how many possessions did this team throw away at the end of the day? And early on, even, there were some. That one where Chukwu was stuck in the corner. There were a few plays early on where Chukwu just got stuck on the ball, and you can see why they don't throw it to him a lot or involve him in the flow of the offense. It's because the ball just gets stuck there. And you want to make the most of all of these situations, and they ultimately aren't able to do it in a game like this. But how do you feel, you know, good first half, rough second half, against probably the best team in college basketball. Yeah, so I didn't see too many people, uh, I guess, super angry about this. Like, people are like, oh, Frank with the turnover, and oh, this team played so poorly down the stretch. But, guys, it's Duke. It's one of the best teams in the country, you know, coming up against Syracuse. Syracuse, I mean, we were well aware of some of their uh, deficiencies on the offensive end. Duke is a great uh, defensive. I mean, did I say offensive? They're great on both yeah. ends. Uh, no, Syracuse struggles on offense, and Duke is great on both ends. Yeah. Specifically, like their defense this year on ball has been great. And then you have someone like Trey Jones Bear. guarding Battle. Bear had one play where he just completely mauled Howard at half court. Yeah. And then O'Connell got an easy dunk. That showed Barrett's defensive prowess, really. So they have a bunch great. of athletes, and Syracuse struggled a little bit. 
Um, Syracuse was toe-to-toe with them in the first half. So you get probably, I mean, I think that we could say Syracuse probably played somewhere in the A range of what they're capable of in the first half. And then in the second half, you probably saw them revert back to, like, maybe a C, you know, like... C would probably be even a little bit generous compared to what some people are saying about them. I mean, you're going to miss shots sometimes. That happens. Um, but Syracuse definitely could have played <coughs> a little bit better. So the the A, and then it falls apart, drops off a little bit in the second half. I'm not overly concerned, though. Duke Duke's just phenomenal, and you're playing against one of the best coaches uh, in college basketball. Ultimately, at the end of the day, this game was what would have sealed you in the tournament concretely. Right. And they did their work against Louisville Wednesday, so that's what's important about this week. You go away one and one from this week, I think we're all happy, no matter which way it goes. So the Louisville game, wildly impressive. Yeah. I was wildly impressed with them in that game. Because you know what? Louisville has fallen off the map in recent weeks. Part of that was uh, the Duke collapse and then another rough showing this weekend. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, losing by 20 and scoring 49 against Syracuse, you do not feel good about. But Syracuse did their part in that game, and they were active defensively, and they showed why their defensive rating, believe it or not, is right up there with last year's, despite going with a smaller defensive lineup, pulling Dolajai out of there to the bench, not playing Chukwu nearly as much. They have still been able to replicate, if not beat, their defensive production from last year. Yeah, so obviously Chris Mack's first time uh, coaching for Louisville, facing uh, Jim Beheim in the 2-3 zone. Uh, so, I mean, there's that learning curve there when it comes to uh, cracking the code, I guess, of the zone. And also Louisville has, like, they were ranked, but they have some talent deficiencies. Like, they've got good yeah, players. No one sticks out to you Yeah, they've got good players and a good team, but they don't have any real true playmakers. They don't have anyone even close to what R.J. Barrett can do. You know what I mean? Yeah. They don't have that guy who creates and does things for other people. And then they also were kind of just running around, you know, trying. They were dribbling into bad areas. It looked like they, it looked like they wanted to be trapped at points. And I don't know if you saw this too. They kept beating the traps, which was a weird thing. But they, they must have gotten trapped what like eight to ten times in the first half alone. Yeah. Um, just out of like poor, poor ball movement and dribbling into the wrong spots they, on the floor. They turned it over thirteen times, and it looked like they could have turned it over like seventeen to twenty the way they yeah. got trapped. And I was asking after the game, like, were you guys trying to trap? extra and Bayheim was just like yeah you know we double in the corners yeah and, and uh, Louisville kept going there yeah. and then um, <laughs> it's like what are you guys doing I think Battle said like they were trying to get guys like with their backs turned and then like get them with their backs returned which I don't know why guys would be in that situation anyway and they happen to just be there and their approach against the zone made no sense they were just passing side to side and they just dug themselves such a massive hole with the turnovers and everything else that they weren't able to get going offensively. When they shoot from three, it was like something ridiculously low, too. They were shooting terrible. It was a combination of Syracuse just flexing like their defensive potential and Louisville just looking like they were not prepared for that game. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so we'll, we can get into Frank Howard uh, struggling a little bit against Louisville. He only played 11 minutes. Uh, his final stat line was zero points, zero rebounds, and one assist. So, obviously, Frank, not that involved, and the team looked great without him, quite frankly. I mean, I don't uh, I don't want to say that the team is... It, the team is not better without Frank Howard. The team needs Frank Howard to be playing well to be its best version of itself, obviously. 
Um, but what are you seeing from the team when Frank Howard's off the floor that might uh, mean, you know, that Syracuse kind of play it might be a little better without him? It's different, and they talked about after the game. It's a different look when it, the ball is in battle's hands. I think he's willing to work with the bigs a little bit more. I think he's more aware to like get into the thick of the defense and kick out. That's something Howard hasn't been able to do extremely well this year. You know, Beheim keeps saying it over and over again. He's not able to get by guys. So battle with his penetrating ability, he's able to get into the thick of the defense and kick out. And in the game, he had seven assists. So he's been able to do it. He's been able to get in those lineups where Bayheim's alongside him, Hughes is alongside him. Hughes looked really good in that game too, I think, you know, four threes. He is able to really just get the shooting on this team going, and the more they play that lineup, the better of a shooting team Syracuse right. is going to be. Well, oddly, Frank Howard, uh, heading into the game against Duke, in which Howard actually knocked down a pair of threes, um, Frank was actually just two of nine from three. I yeah. mean, the- they can have it both ways, though. And James talked about this in the Slack this morning. Like, Bayheim knows Howard's able to play off the ball. So if they want to run some battle sets with Howard on the floor, they've done that for years, and they can still do it now. Right. And that's, I think, what they wanted to do against Duke more often than not. Especially against a team that's better on ball pressure. Uh, and can speed up the tempo a little bit and, you know, give uh, Syracuse some trouble because you don't want Tyus Battle getting worn out by a good defender like Trey Jones of Duke. You don't want him getting worn out uh, with Trey Jones guarding him 90 feet on every single possession. Tyus Battle's your best player, and we saw this a little bit earlier this season. Um, This was before Battle kind of settled comfortably into that point guard role where Tyus actually, you know, there were the four games in the beginning of the season that he kind of struggled. He wasn't his himself when he had to pick up the slack for Frank not playing. And then as soon as Frank came back, Tyus really emerged when he was playing off the ball. Yeah. So we've seen him move like to the point guard duties and kind of you know play well in that role. But you don't want him getting worn out uh, playing the role of point guard for this team because he's also Syracuse's best scorer. Yeah, they have options, which is good. And it's it hasn't been a problem as far as chemistry goes. I think Howard's just such a consummate leader, and he's always my favorite one to talk to in the locker room because he just has such a good grip on what's going on. And that's why it's important to have him out there too is because he understands situational basketball extremely well. And I still think he's the best defender on the team. Statistically, that's backed up quite a bit. So... They, they strike a balance there, and I think do a good job with it in that they're able to give their opponents different looks when it's that battle Bayheim lineup versus when it's the traditional Howard lineup. And they do a little bit of that with the bigs, too. I probably want to see Dolezal playing a little more going forward than Chukwu, the way Chukwu's played of late. So, you know what? I, I still am a big proponent, and I said this even after that disaster week they had the week before this. This team's great. The record shows it. The way they've played in key situations has shown it. They're a little streaky and inconsistent, but they have set themselves far ahead of last year's team, I think, in that they have different approaches and options to throw at opponents. And, you know, even with the loss against Duke, a blow it over Louisville, a very good team. I think this team's starting to show that they are close to a lock as far as the tournament goes. Yeah, so, yeah, last night would have locked us in, last night being the game against Duke. Beating Duke would have locked us into the tournament, um, and then with four games left, you know, like you're you're getting there. It would take probably an zero and four stretch, you know, to keep Syracuse out of the tournament. And obviously, you're not expecting that. And even then, you might have that like coin flip chance that they've always had at the door. So right, and as you're saying, like this team is 
definitely past where they were. Where last year's team went to the Sweet 16, I'm not going to predict that Syracuse goes to the Sweet You know, like, I mean, we can't sit here and do this without a bracket in front of us, kind of. And you can't do it even when you have the bracket in front of you because, you know, March Madness. But this team's ceiling might be above where last year's team ceiling was. I think that this team ceiling could be as far as the Elite Eight because of the potential when all things are clicking for this team as Bayheim usually gets uh, the team to the point of come the NCAA tournament, that could result in an Elite Eight push as far as the Elite Eight maybe. What are you, what are you thinking on that? I think so because when you get in the March, you run into a situation where you go against weaker opponents. When you're getting hammered by the ACC night in and night out, you're going to look awful sometimes because the other teams can just be on their game. And I think that was what happened against Virginia Tech. Um, so, and especially you, the coaches having recognized the two-three zone and played against. Yeah, it they recognize that, and then you catch teams off guard in March, like Arizona State and TCU, that just weren't able to handle it, and even Michigan State to some degree last year. So, it, like, you just want to get in, and that's always been their problem these last five, six years: is can you get in with that Louisville win in hand? You get three quartile one wins. I feel much better about them at this point because, you know, no one in the NCAA, even in a weak year, that's an important factor too. This is a weak year. I'm still a proponent of that, even with bid stealing. I've been listening to John and uh, Dan talk on their other show. They're saying they could quickly start to close the door even in a weak year because of that bid stealing factor. Um, and, you know, the bubble's always weak, they say. This year I just don't see a whole lot of, like, strong at-large things. And that doesn't mean, like, there won't be, like, a crowd trying to get in at the door. I just think when you have Duke and no one else in the NCAA can match that Duke victory, like, that's just going right. to set the orange apart. When you got a team like Oklahoma who's 4-9, and nine, you know, in conference, still knocking on the door of the tournament talk, it's kind of like, all right, well, what's this? What's the standard of team that we're letting in here? Yeah, all right, so the bubble isn't, like, the bubble's always weak, but, like, this year it's made up of a lot of Power 5 teams that are kind of getting bullied around by the tops of their conference. Yeah, and it's not even, like, that there aren't other teams with good cases out there and it's going to be tough at the end, and it certainly is going to be for all those teams on the edge. But... Like, do, Syracuse has just set themselves apart with how they've scheduled the teams that they've beat. You know, they still have some quality quartile two wins, too. Georgetown just moved into the quartile two, which is great. Uh, and Old Dominion, that bad, bad loss that they had, might end up being a quartile two loss. They're just two spots out of being quartile two at this point. I so think it, Old Dominion's quartile three, I think. They're because right that on was the at edge, home. They're right on the edge of moving up, though, okay. I believe. So... It's going to be close, as it always is, but that Duke win was just such a monumental thing for the Syracuse team to have going into that situation. The Louisville win looks great. Ohio State, not so much. But you took care of business against road ACC teams, which fits into the Quartile 2 portion, and I think they're just in great shape. You know, you went with Oklahoma. Think of Clemson, losing record in the ACC. I think they'll almost certainly be in, even with just the one quartile win over Virginia Tech. That's all they really have. Yeah, yeah. So they're five and eight, Clemson in uh, in ACC play. And Syracuse. A lot is, of people think they're going to be in. Yeah. NC State worse than Syracuse at this point too. They'll probably be in. So like, what does that say about Syracuse? They're just a notch above. Yeah. So um, quick note. Uh, I just wanted to mention this. It didn't look like Jalen Carey dressed for the game against Louisville. I don't know. Do you have anything there? Do you want to talk <laughs> At about? At this point, there's four games left. We have exhausted our carry talk. Yeah. 
maybe you look back on this year if he transfers. Maybe you look back on this year if he doesn't develop as they want him to and say, you know, what could have been early on if they just stuck with him? Yeah. When you have UNC and Virginia as two of your last four and then you're right into the fire of the tournament, they're not going to be able to integrate them this year. They're just not. Right. Um, all right, so coming up next, we got UNC on Tuesday. That's a 9 p.m. tip. Uh, is that game on ESPN? Yeah, I believe so. Okay, and then we got Wake Forest on Saturday at Wake Forest. That's a 12 p.m. noon tip. Uh, let's hope that Syracuse doesn't come out sleepwalking in that one because Wake Forest is not a good team. Yeah. Uh, UNC, quick preview of that. Uh, you got any notes on UNC, or you want me to run with this one? I'm always wildly impressed by UNC, and I came into this two-game stretch saying I wouldn't be stunned if they got destroyed by UNC and beat Duke because we've just never played UNC well. That's maybe partially us, but also North Carolina just always puts on incredible product of depth, uh, veteran leadership, and top-end skill. Luke May has just been phenomenal again for them. Yeah, last couple games, Luke May has been lighting it up. He had a uh, fantastic game against Duke where, did he score 30 against Duke? He might have. I think he did. And then Luke May uh, against Florida State uh, yesterday put up 15-11 and um, in a pretty big win for North Carolina. North Carolina... 177 to 59 against the Seminoles. Um, Cam Johnson can score with the best of them. Kobe White is a flash in the open court, and he could shoot a little bit. That's scary. Yeah. Nasir Little has loads of potential. Um, This team is good, North Carolina, and Roy Williams always has his guys prepared. Uh, They pass well. and it just doesn't feel like Syracuse hangs in there against Yeah, I will not be picking Qs in that game. I will say, though, they they enjoy playing on the road more from what they say, and they look better on the road a lot of the time, so that might help them a little bit. Right, so going to be a tough one on Tuesday night. Um, not one that Syracuse is necessarily expected to win, of course, uh, but as, as Tyus Battle would say, this is an opportunity um, more than it is. Uh, yeah, and I saw someone say it's a low-risk schedule the rest of the way, too, which is... I don't know. I don't know how I feel about a r- low risk because so Syracuse loses. I mean, I don't want to write it in, but pencil in a loss to UNC, and of course, in pencil, I'm saying because you know how things can change. Pencil in the loss to UNC. Pencil in the loss to Virginia. Sorry, there. Those are two really tough games. I'm not ruling out Syracuse, but let's just pretend. Mm-hmm. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many yeah, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. If Syracuse slips up against Clemson, which is feasible, Clemson's a decent enough team and it's on the road. And if Syracuse, you know, trips, like doesn't impress against Wake Forest, things kind of fall apart pretty quickly. Not for tournament hopes, but... Now that I think about it, you know, there's two factors at play here that I think might give that point some justice. You want the best ACC tournament seeding, which is obviously going to be impacted by these last four games. And then... Clemson's right on the bubble with you, so you don't want to improve their resume with what will be a quartile one win, I want to say, as far as Syracuse's ranking goes, because they're about 40 now in the NET. So, yeah, Clemson will get a quartile win out of beating Syracuse. So you don't want to boost their standings on the bubble with you. Wake Forest would be a tough one to lose to just because that pencils in is a bad loss. Not as bad as Old Dominion and Wake Forest, I don't believe, but still pretty bad. 
and you know you want to just have you never know what's going to happen towards selection sunday in these tournaments in particular you know syracuse could pull another quartile win out of the acc tournament who knows but you want to just line yourself up with the best position possible because you never know what's going to happen at the end once you lose control you hate sitting there and saying what could we have done different yeah right i mean obviously i think syracuse is in pretty good shape to at least get one or syracuse will get one by excuse me uh in the acc tournament um but you know there's a possibility that syracuse nudges its way up into um the territory where they get the both the buys because right now you got Virginia Tech right ahead of Syracuse. Syracuse actually tied for fifth with Florida State. Florida State is nine and five. Virginia Tech is ten and five, uh, and Syracuse nine and five as well. Um, so Syracuse needs to get into that top four to get that uh, the two buys. Um, probably not going to happen, but you know you could claw your way there. Yeah, you're going to have to knock off these elite teams and then hope that like some triple. It would take like a three and one or something that, like that. And it's tricky when you lost to Virginia Tech and lost to Florida State already. And right, it's probably not going to yeah. happen, but you know, worth mentioning. At least if you get a buy, you know, it's better than last year. Right. Um, so no awards this week. We're we're going to skip that part. Um, otherwise, you got anything else that you want to say? I I think at this point in the year. I'm feeling really good that they're going to be in. The Louisville win did a lot for me because you go against four top 25 teams in the last six, you say you just need to pull out one of those, and they got that done ahead of time, which is great because now you have two more opportunities to build on top of that. People have really been chirping about this team this year, and I get it. Like They are frustrating, and if you look back at preseason, they were supposed to be up there with the best, and they weren't in the end again. But if you carve out a good tournament run... That's all that matters, and I think this team's capable of doing it, and they're putting themselves in position to make the tournament, which is the first step. So I'm happy with how things are going so far. You know, we, we knew this was going to be a brutal stretch on the year, and they're already off to 1-1, one and one, which is fine. Right, just a few days away from our favorite time of the year, March. Um, so we'll we'll get there slowly. As things, as things kind of slow down and there's less uh, action to talk about, we might try to have some interviews, um, get some people on here to talk about Q's Hoops. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Otherwise, that'll do it for this episode of Unpeeling Syracuse Basketball uh, for NoonsMagician.com. Uh, for Bobby Manning. Bobby Manning. Uh, at Real Bob Manning on Twitter. I'm Dylan. At Defines31 on Twitter, follow the blog at Noon's Magician on Twitter. Um, that'll do it. You got goodbye, everybody. Peace out and go orange. <laughs>